Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. Good morning, and welcome to the Flatline. I'm your host, Rick Hughes, and for the next few minutes, I'd invite you to stay with me. We always have some time of motivation, inspiration, education, and we always do it without any type of manipulation. So thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the FLOT line. FLOT is a military term. It stands for the forward line of troops. And what we're using is a military metaphor on this radio show to explain how you can form 10 problem-solving devices in your soul, much like the military would have the 10 units on the front line to stop the outside enemy from overrunning the command post. So we're trying to show you in a military analogy using that how you can use 10 unique problem-solving devices to form a defensive perimeter in your soul to stop the outside sources of adversity before they are able to break through and become the inside sources of stress. That's why we always say adversity is inevitable and stress is optional. Adversity is what circumstances do to you, and stress, well, that's what you do to yourself. So learning those 10 unique problem-solving devices, we make that the, the centerpiece of our radio show. We've taught them over and over again, beginning with rebound, <clears throat> how I solve the problem of sin, rebound. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all of our wrongdoings. So when I... When I sin, I get out of fellowship with God. And if I rebound, I confess my sin, then I'm getting back in fellowship with God. And that's the process. Anytime I sin, I know that I quench the Holy Spirit. Anytime I sin, I know I grieve the Holy Spirit. And so if I don't rebound, then I stay out of fellowship and I come under divine discipline. And the longer that I'm out of fellowship, the more divine discipline I will endure as God seeks to get my attention and get me to rebound, to recover from my sin and get back in fellowship with him where I belong. So rebound is the first problem-solving device because we all sin. We all have a genetically formed old sin nature that we got from Adam. And if we don't learn how to control that sin nature, by using rebound, then we'll never learn how to let the Holy Spirit control our life. So basically, you're going to be controlled by your old sin nature. If you are, as a Christian, then the, the Bible is going to call you a carnal Christian. Or you can let the Holy Spirit control your life. And if you are, then you're going to be called a spiritual Christian. A spiritual Christian and a mature Christian are two different things. Spirituality and maturity are not the same. Spirituality is absolute. It's based on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And maturity is not absolute. It's based on the content of the Word of God that you have stored in your soul. So the more of the Word of God you learn, the more you store it in your soul, in your memory center, in your frame of reference, in your vocabulary, the more you become a mature believer. And this is why the Bible says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God wants you to be a mature believer. And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 5, there are a lot of things I like to say to you, but I can't because you won't understand them. They're, they're too hard for you. 
And sometimes immature Christians can't get certain things. They're not interested in getting the deeper things of God. I don't mean, you know, some supernatural deeper things of God, but I mean, they're <clears throat> sometimes what I call the nod to God crowd. They're happy to go to church. They're happy to sing a few songs. They're happy to put their tithe in the offering and go home and head for Luby's or McDonald's or wherever they go. And that's enough the rest of the time. Leave me alone, God. I'll see you next Sunday, God. But that's not the kind of Christian that we're looking for on this radio show. We're looking for those of you who are willing to grow in grace. For those of you that are willing to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, because you are the ones that will be the pivot. You're the ones that will deliver the nation. You're the ones that will have an invisible impact and a historical impact. And you can be the winner believer that God will use in your generation, in your lifetime. And God's always looking for a few good people, men or women, people that can represent him effectively and accurately, people that can lift up the Lord Jesus Christ effectively and actively, people that are not trying to make a buck off of God's name, and there's a lot of that going on today. And so as you listen to our radio show, it's, it's imperative you understand what we're looking for. We're looking for people that are hungry, people that have positive volition, people that want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not people that want to be entertained. And we don't sell anything here. We're not selling any messages. We're not selling any books. We're not selling any series. We have all of that available, and it's all free. Everything is free. You'll never hear us ask for a dime. That's because we've learned that if God's in it, God will pay for it, and we don't have to run around with our hand out asking people to give. And that's not being arrogant, but that's saying that grace provides. And so if God doesn't provide, we just stop the radio show. That's as simple as that. So if one day we're not there, you'll know something happened. We didn't have the money to pay for it. But these are not free shows. We pay for them. We purchase the time. So I ask for your prayers and that consideration. Now, what I want to go over with you in this show today is the teaching of God's holy word, God's infallible word, and how we have to differentiate between the truthfulness to the sense and to the meaning. The sense of the verse, what is the sense of the verse, and what is the meaning of the verse. Those are very important, just as important as uh, anything philological or etymological, the study of language, linguistics, the study of literature, or syntactical precision in the passage. Those are all important. But we have to understand the sense of the verse and the meaning of the verse, what God is telling us. Uh, a translation of scripture is required. For example, in Romans 8.1, you may have a Bible, and if you do, I want you to look at Romans 8.1 sometime, because in some Bibles it says, there's therefore no condemnation that are in Christ who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so in that version, it would seem to say, if you follow the flesh, you're condemned, but if you follow the spirit, <clears throat> you're not condemned. But in the original manuscripts that we have available to us from what we have in, in antiquity, what we know is written, it says there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. So it doesn't say anything about who walk after the flesh but not after the spirit. And some Bibles omit that part that was added and some Bibles don't. 
And so you've got to have a pastor that can tell you what technically was in the original languages and uh, what it means, what's the sense of that verse. So the Holy Spirit gives you the sense of the passage. He always does by means of your pastor. Here's a verse that's very interesting to me in Nehemiah 8.8. 8. Uh, once the Jews had been released from bondage by the Persians who had captured them, Ezra recovered and uh, recorded, excuse me, the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And Nehemiah came along, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls, and, uh, and those are the last historical events of the Old Testament. But listen to what Nehemiah 8.8 says. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Distinctly gave the sense and caused them to understand. If you don't understand what the verse means, how the verse applies to you, if you don't understand uh, the context of the verse, then you're going to uh, misapply the information in your life. So that's very critical. We have to have the sense and the meaning of the verse. Giving the sense of the passage is all the more important for our time now, today, because at this time in history here in America, we're seeing a tremendous uh, distortion of the languages. Tremendous distortion of the languages. And it's occurring in front of our very eyes. We're seeing it happen right in front of us. And it's called spin. And you, you should know that word from politics. There's a lot of spin in politics. But spin is part of the destruction of the English language. And it's when emphasis is not on the meaning of the word, but rather the public relationship value of the word. And so when we're talking about spin, people spin things like you may remember one of our presidents that said distinctly, I did not have sex with that woman while he was in office as president. Well, he did have sex with that woman, but his spin was I did not have intercourse with the woman, and he was using that to, it didn't say what he really had, and I don't want to say it either. You know, you know the news. So destruction of the language is based on obscenities, things that are tacking, things that were once held sacred, like the word, we're having a gay time. Well, you can't say that anymore today because that word's been hijacked. And so it doesn't mean that if you tell somebody that we're having a gay time, they're going to look at you like you're weird. So words that were once held sacred, words that were once important, lose character. Language is manipulated. And it becomes easier and easier for liars to lie. Did you hear me? It becomes easier and easier for liars to lie because they spin the language. They hide behind the words that only they understand. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, Paul made it clear, for not at any time did we use flattering words, nor a cloak of greed. In other words, we didn't go after your finances and we didn't try to uh, flatter you. You know, we weren't out trying to impress you tell you what a great person you are, Paul said. Uh, and, and as you know well, he wrote to those first Thessalonians, to Thess Thessalonians there, people in Thessalonica. So here's another concept. In our spiritual life, it's necessary to establish an internal kingdom of virtue. 
and the virtue that we know is a problem-solving device called seven and eight. Motivational virtue is your personal love for God, and functional virtue is your impersonal love for others. This is critical. If you don't have an internal kingdom of virtue built on the doctrine in your soul, the logos, the word in your soul, then you have no uh, direction, you have no boundaries, you have no concrete foundation. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 5, and this is sort of a a modified expanded translation. It says, and by this we may be sure that we know him if, and that's a third class condition, if we keep his mandates. So the ones who say, I know him, and keep on saying the same, but do not obey the mandates, they are liars. In other words, they put a spin on their salvation, and there is no truth in their words. But whoever keeps his logos, or his word, whoever retains his word, truly in this one, the love for God has been fully developed. Love for God is motivational virtue. We obey him because we love him. This is the verse in 1 John 5, 1. This is the love of God. If you love him, you will obey him, and his mandates are not hard. 1 John uh, 5, 1 through 3, you can read it for yourself. If you love me, you will obey me, and my mandates are not hard. So we put a spin on salvation, and we may say I've been baptized or I've joined up or I've turned over a new leaf. The worst spin that I can't stand is I repented. This word is misused terribly, and it is not salvation. People say you need to repent. You cannot repent of your sin. You have an old sin nature. You're going to shut your old sin nature down and never sin again? I know what they're trying to say, that I'm sorry for the sins I've done in the past, and I'm going to attempt not to do any sins in the future. And you're going to get saved that way? I don't think so. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's a gift from God, not of works. You can't manipulate God into saving you because you're a good person. So this is another place that it's important to know the sense and the meaning of a verse. A believer who guards the word or the logos Now, the Logos, L-O-G-O-S, can refer to Jesus Christ, or the Logos can refer to the Scriptures, one of the two. But whoever guards the Logos will be guarded by Christ himself. Listen to Revelation 3.10. Because you guarded the Logos of me, I will guard you in the hour of testing that's about to come on the ones dwelling on the earth. The testing, the parasmos, the Greek word parasmos, the, the afflictions, the trials, the tribulations that are coming. We must guard the doctrine. I have a ministry coin that says guard the doctrine. It's my objective to guard the doctrine, to guard the word, not to twist it, not to put spin on it, but to give the literal, actual interpretation of the meaning. So what is the logos? If I'm to guard the Logos, what is it? It's called divine viewpoint, thinking. The Logos is the mind of Christ, and it was written and recorded by God the Holy Spirit for all future generations, such as the church, us today, 
the tribulation that's going to follow us after we are raptured out, and even the millennium. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, who has known the mind of Christ so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the recorded scriptures. The New Testament is indeed the mind of Christ. The Old Testament is indeed the mind of Christ. He wrote it all. He is God. He's the God-man. Certainly he wrote it all. He knew it all. He composed it all. It's his thoughts, his words. And so if we're going to know the mind of Christ, we have to convert gnosis or knowledge into epinosis, two Greek words, I mean two totally different things. I have to convert knowledge into full knowledge. In other words, I comprehend it, but I have to comply with it. And uh, if we understand, for example, the doctrine of kenosis, that when he was here as a man, he never used his very own deity to sustain himself. He depended on the Holy Spirit, just like you do. And uh, if we understand things like eistasis, or getting the truth and nothing but the truth, uh, we have to understand Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I have to learn to think like he thought. Uh, my, my, someone once said, a pastor friend of mine once said, we need to have the mentality and the intentionality of Jesus Christ. We assimilate the thinking of Jesus Christ. When we learn God's word under a qualified pastor who teaches it to us, we assimilate the thinking of Jesus Christ in the Bible and we build a frame of reference called a divine viewpoint. We have a river running in our mentality of our soul and that river flows with God's word. And so as it begins to flow through our soul, through the mentality of our soul, we're told in Romans 12 to stop thinking in terms of arrogance beyond what we should think, but think in terms of sanity because God gave to us a standard of thinking from his word, divine viewpoint. We are to think that. So if I'm going to think like God, does he think like me? In other words, does he get emotional? And no, God does not get emotional. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. So you may get emotional, you may get upset, you may get mad, angry, bitter. God doesn't do that. You, he doesn't get emotional. He doesn't wake up in the morning and say, what a wonderful sunrise, I feel so good today. And sometimes people go to church and have an emotional experience, and they they think somehow or another that by getting emotional, they got closer to God. And that's just not true. When you leave that church, God's still there because he's eminent and transcendent. He's omnipresent. So he's everywhere. And you're not getting any closer to him because you got an emotional feeling after singing you know, a bunch of verses of some song. So stop thinking like that. God doesn't think like you think. He thinks in terms of righteousness and justice. He thinks in terms of faithfulness and fidelity, for example. He, he is the eternal continuum in you, in time. Continuing in time, he's there. How do you get close to God? Well, if you want to get really close to God, listen to Jeremiah 29, 13. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. 
That's positive volition. That's hunger for God and his word. Hungry to know him. Hungry to know what he has for you. Hungry to know his direction for you, his will for you. That's what God's looking for. People that are hungry to establish a relationship with him so that in their life, occupation with Jesus Christ is the ultimate problem-solving device. In Jeremiah 9, 24, let him that glories or brags or boasts brag about this, that he understands me and he knows me. Then you've heard me say there's a difference between knowing God and understanding God. And I have no doubt that many, many, many people know God. But I do have a doubt that a lot of people understand the God they know. And by that I mean they may have a lot of gnosis, a lot of information, but they've never put it into epinosis. They've never cycled it into their soul by faith. And so it's not in the wisdom department. It's not in the heart. So you get the information in your mind. You hear it in your mind. The Bible calls that your noose. And if you go to church and the pastor teaches a passage, you comprehend it in your mind. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But then you, by faith, had to transfer it. You transfer it by faith to your heart. That's where it becomes epinosis, or the wisdom of God. So you want to glory or brag about something, brag that you understand him and you know him. And then he goes on to tell you, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness in the earth. There's three characteristics of his essence. Love, justice, and righteousness. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So the justice of God is the guardian of the righteousness of God. And what the righteousness of God rejects, then the justice of God must judge. And all of this is in a package that God loves you. And he has made it possible for you to have a relationship with him by sending his son to pay the ultimate price for our sin. That's where the Bible says, he that knew no sin was made sin for us so that we may be made the righteousness of God through him. We can have a relationship with God so the justice of God is not forced to judge us since we have equal righteousness through Jesus Christ. And we have that opportunity because he loved us and provided that for us. So if you never accumulate any divine viewpoint thinking like what I'm telling you, then you will never know God or you'll never be able to please God. You'll operate on your emotions and you'll be a vacillating Christian and you'll up and down and round and round and from camp to camp and program to program and you'll never find the stability and the growth you need to have. But once you know the mandates of scripture, then something can happen. It's a test to see if you will obey them. First Peter 5, 2, for example, the Bible says, feed the flock of God. There's a mandate to pastors. God instructs pastors to feed the flock. I present to you, no flock is fed on 30 minutes on Sunday morning, 30 minutes on Sunday night, and 30 minutes on Wednesday night. You're not feeding anybody. They'll go hungry. They'll starve to death. 
And that's why they go around the pastor trying to find more information. And that's why they go to Christian bookstores and buy books about the Christian life. And that's why they get on the radio and television, try to find somebody to teach them something about the Christian life. They're starving to death because pastors don't feed the flock. We got a two, three, four, five, ten million dollar building, and we're running around holding each other's hands and praying for each other, but nobody's being fed. And so they must feed the flock. The congregation, there is a mandate to you, me. Second Peter 3.18, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I can't grow if I'm not fed. And I'm not fed if the pastor doesn't study and teach. And I'm not being fed on an hour and a half a week. My goodness, I couldn't even get out of the first grade on an hour and a half a week. Second Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that is does not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Is there shame at the judgment seat of Christ? You better believe there will be. Can you, when you look at your life and you realize you blew a fantastic opportunity and you never grew, you never developed any divine viewpoint, then yeah, you're not going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yes, you'll have eternal life. Yes, you'll be there forever. I'm not saying that, but you will not complete your course. You didn't run the race. You got distracted. You peeled off. You went down the my way highway, and your Christian life suffered because of it, and God could have used a lot more effort on your behalf, but you weren't fed. You weren't encouraged to grow. You weren't under a pastor that studied and taught you. You didn't apply it and didn't convert the gnosis to epinosis. Consequently, you operated on your emotions and your Christian life was flat and high, flat and high, flat and high until you got tired of the trampoline effect and quit. That happens every day. So this is just the beginning of understanding why it's critical for us to have a well-qualified pastor, why it's critical for us to grow in grace. So. If we don't have that man, we don't understand the sense. We don't understand the meaning. We don't understand what it really is all about. What it's all about is glorifying Jesus Christ, becoming Christ-like so that we replicate his life and represent him to our generation. That's what God is looking for, a few good people like that that can be part of the pivot of mature believers that will sustain a nation, deliver a nation, in times just exactly as we have today. We are at a crossroads in history. Time will tell which way we're going, and you have a decision to make. Will you grow in grace? Will you be faithful to study and learn and apply, or will you trot off down the my way highway? I hope you're listening. I hope you're paying attention. Until next week, this is your host, Rick Hughes, saying thank you for listening to The Floodline. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.